0: Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of the show, as well as articles and information about my one-on-one alignment coaching, then you can head to my website. It's simonjedrew.com. If you do have the means to support the show, then I'd love to see you in my Patreon community. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Drew. We'll also get access to over 240 episodes recorded before 2020. But for now, enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for spending your time here listening to the Practical Stoic podcast today. Now, as you will all know for sure, I'm particularly interested in the chaos that is the American political system at the moment, uh, and I've been kind of talking about it on and off throughout the podcast all of this year. And, uh, and a few months ago, I was actually scrolling through YouTube and I came across a particularly insightful TED talk by our guest today talking about the, uh, the electoral system in America. And our guest today is none other than Lawrence Lessig. And I'm so grateful that Laura Lawrence came on the show because uh, it's such a fascinating uh, topic to discuss. You know, the, the really chaotic systems that have kind of embedded themselves into the U- United States uh, political system at the moment. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's almost as if there's no way out of it. But if there is a way out of it, then we're going to find that way through people like Lawrence. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Lawrence before we jump in, and then we're going to get straight into this interview. So... Lawrence Lessig is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School prior to which he founded the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School and taught at the University of Chicago. Founder of Equal Citizens and a founding board member of Creative Commons, Lessig serves on the scientific board of AXA Research Fund and has received numerous awards including a Webby, Free Software Foundation's Freedom Award, Scientific America 50, and Fast Case 50 Awards. Cited by The New Yorker as the most important thinker on intellectual property in the internet era, Lessig's current work addresses institutional corruption Relationships which, while legal, weaken public trust in an institution, especially as that affects democracy. His books include They Don't Represent Us in November 2019, Fidelity and Constraint, How the Supreme Court Has Read the American Constitution, May 2019, America Compromised, 2018, Republic Lost, Version 2 in 2015, Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop It in 2011, among many others. Lessig holds undergraduate degrees from the University of Pennsylvania, a Masters in Philosophy from Cambridge University, and a Juris Doctorate from Yale. So, without any further ado, I want to present to you my amazing guest for today, Lawrence Lessig. (laughs) Okay, so Lawrence, mate, I'm really grateful that you've come on the show. Uh, this is such a good opportunity to talk to you, especially in a time like this uh, with America and the state that it's in. You know, we need to be talking to people like you who have obviously had experience in the government, in, in, in you know, helping people to push forward positive agendas. And um, I guess I want to start by allowing you to introduce yourself and, and tell the audience who will be listening um, a little bit more about yourself and, and what you do.
1: So I'm a law professor at Harvard, um, although um, most of my work, especially over the past dozen years, has been focused on um, uh, democracy reform, trying to turn the American government into something we could properly call a representative democracy, and so that's involved um, building organizations and building movements and trying to engage and push for reform, wherever that's possible.
0: Mm. And I wanted to ask from the, the start as well, you know, when I emailed you, um, in, in your reply back to me, you said, uh, I could probably use a bit of Stoicism at a time like this. <laughs> and, and I, I wondered, you know, cause I didn't reach out to you because I knew that you were interested in Stoicism or had ever, learned about Stoicism, but, uh, you know, what has been your experience learning about Stoicism and why would you say that now is a time uh, that we need a little bit of Stoicism?
1: Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I have any deep understanding of Stoicism. I I studied philosophy uh, 150 years ago when I went to university in Cambridge. Um, um, But I was, I was referring more to the, you know, I think that there's this weird sense that everyone's beginning to develop that, the presumptions of you know the past 40 years that the world's gonna get to be a better place more comfortable more um, uh, uh, connected in a positive way are not to be taken for granted and so in some sense you know hunkered down in quarantine as my family is here and has been for the last feels like six years um, (laughs) uh, you know I think we have to come to understand how we live with less we understand how we um, um, are able to get through uh, adversity without it affecting um, our capacity to be human uh, and that's mm. you know that's something kind of new for Americans even though you know obviously many people around the world live life perpetually in that state they've been living at that state since the beginning of time and and so it's something new for us but not necessarily for anyone else
0: Mm. And, you know, I kind of wanted to ask, uh, straight off from the start, why did you originally get into law? And why were you so interested in politics as well?
1: Well, I got into law, um, I, you know, I graduated in the university in the United States, studying economics and economic history. And then I went to Cambridge in England, to study philosophy. And uh, I loved philosophy. And I toyed seriously with becoming um an academic in philosophy getting a phd um, but at the last moment you know i was obsessed with wittgenstein in philosophy and it seemed something um internally incoherent to be obsessed with wittgenstein and then decide to get a phd in philosophy uh, and and so it seemed like law would be a more practical kind of philosophy and so that's what led me into law um and um, law school where i graduated from yale was in many ways deeply philosophical, although it's um, focused on a very practical question of how do we order and um, improve justice within society. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that was a perfect fit and it allowed me to quickly move into becoming an academic. I became involved in activism you know, really, I, I never got into law. I didn't want to become a law professor because I wanted to be uh, an activist. I, I got into law and becoming a professor because I love the idea of reading and writing. And, and the, the striking thing about, maybe it's true in all academic disciplines, but it's especially true in law, nobody reads anybody. Um, so that, you know, that I experienced that as a certain kind of freedom because I felt like I could just write what I thought and cared about. I didn't really have to worry about what other people were thinking as they read it um, but at a certain stage you know at the turn of the um you know at the end of the last century i i began to feel like there were so many fundamental uh uh flaws within our um within the policy that our government was pursuing in a lot of areas i was at that time focused in um, the area of the internet uh, and copyright policy. But you know it wasn't, as a citizen, hard to recognize that climate change, um, healthcare policy, policy to advance the middle class, all of these were areas where the government was systematically misfiring. And the account or the understanding of why they were misfiring was not hard to see because it was tied directly, in my view, to the deeply dysfunctional, corrupted, form of government that we had evolved. Um, so in a certain sense, I felt like it was a, there was a public duty initially to get engaged on issues that I knew something substantively about in the law, and that was the internet and copyright policy. Um, and then that was pushed into a more general, more difficult, um, something hopeless fight to figure out how we can restore something of or establish something of a representative democracy.
0: Mm. And you say somewhat of a hopeless fight. You know, I I think that the sense that I get from, say, your TED Talks or your interviews is that it's such a massive problem that we're dealing with, whether it is the internet, whether it is social media, whether it is, um, you know, a government for the people. Uh, But you do have a sense, uh, you know, I hear from you that there are solutions. You're coming forward with solutions for what we can do about it. And I really like that because... You know, I'm guilty of being that person who always just imagines that things are going to keep on getting better and better and better. Um, But what do you think are the main ways that the world is, or just America in general, is is going backwards at the moment? What do you see that's going backwards, do you think?
1: Well, you know, I feel like I, so in in this work that I've been doing the last dozen years, I've written, um, you know, really... uh, three major books. Um, the first was, um, there's a couple other minor ones in between uh, in related, to, uh, related to reform. But the first was the was book Republic Lost. Um, and what Republic Lost tried to argue is that there was a root cause, you know, inspired by Henry David Thoreau for every thousand hacking at the branches of evil, there's one striking at the root. So the question was, what is the root to the particular flaw in our current uh, instantiation of democracy. And in my view, that root was the corrupting influence of money inside of politics.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And it wasn't hard to to point to, although what was striking at the time was um, how uh, contested it was among political scientists that money was actually having a corrupting effect. you know, the, the weird thing about academic disciplines is that you get rewarded for the counterintuitive, so there was a very high reward among political scientists for, you know, arguing the completely counterintuitive idea that money is not having an effect. And, you know, it's not hard given the way the data uh, um, um, is collected or presented to, to make that argument. so that argument was made. and there was a deeply um, committed view among many that you know money was there, but it wasn't really corrupting or having any deep effect. So my first work was really trying to develop a conception of corruption um, uh, which was a plausible, credible conception of corruption within our tradition. and then you know arguing that in fact our, Um, our system had become corrupt in that sense. The most, then there's a second version of that book in about, you know, 2015, but the most recent book that I've published is something called They Don't Represent Us. And what They Don't Represent Us does is, is it kind of ups the ante or maybe digs deeper for a deeper, more fundamental root when we think about the problem of government. But then it also identifies a problem with us, um, a problem with us, not, not inherent in us but a problem in us crafted or constructed or induced by um uh, the deeply uh uh, divided polarized infrastructure of modern media especially the business model of that infrastructure Mm -hmm. of modern media um but you know on the continuing the line of the roots or the the root cause i mean the point that um that i came to recognize was that Money was just uh, an example of a more fundamental um, corruption or problem. And the more fundamental problem was, we had lost the commitment to the ideal of equal representation within a representative democracy. So money is an obvious example of that inequality. So in America, members of Congress and candidates for Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time raising money to get to office or to stay into office, stay in office. But they get that money from a tiny fraction of the 1%, maybe 150,000 Americans are relevant funders of these congressional candidates. Um, And so what that means is that 150,000 have enormous influence relative to the rest of the nation. And so obviously that's an instantiation of the idea of inequality, but that's not the only um, example of that kind of inequality. gerrymandering, in the way that districts are drawn in the United States uh, uh, affects a deep inequality in the relative political power of people depending on where they happen to live and what their political party happens to be. Um, um, uh, the way we elect the president um, concentrates influence in so-called swing states, states, which could go one way or the other because of the dynamic of the electoral college. But if you don't live in a swing state, your vote just doesn't matter. Literally, the president doesn't care about your views, because your views could never affect whether uh, the president was going to be elected or not. Or, you know, it's astonishing, but the United States has developed um, incredible institutions of suppression in the context of voting. Um, uh, Now, you know, many of those are born um, animated by a racist spirit. Um, But I think that the more fundamental way to understand them today is is as a partisan, uh, as expressing a partisan spirit. So, um, you know, if if states states run election systems, and if you, um, you know, if you're in a Republican state, the Republican administrators run the election system to make it harder for Democrats to vote. Now, you might think, how can you do that? But when you think about the infinite number of practical details that have to be um, fixed in order to run a democracy, you can see lots of places where discretion could be exercised in a way to make it harder for certain people to vote. So Hmm. Georgia is the classic example here. Georgia is a state which is controlled by the Republican Party, but it has an uh, enormous number of, you know obviously it's a big state, it's got a lot of Democrats. Those Democrats are typically, uh, I mean, African-Americans are typically Democrats. Um, and African-Americans um, concentrate in, uh, in neighborhoods um, which are easily manipulated by administrators. So, um, so you'll find that there are fewer polling places or the polling places have fewer voting machines or their hours are weirdly structured or the time to vote before the election day is cut short in those areas and not in other areas. Those are all interventions designed to, designed to, make it harder for Democrats to vote um, than for Republicans to vote. Now that inequality too is completely unjustified. But the point of this part of the book was to say, add all those together, money, uh, uh, gerrymandering, the Senate, um, uh, the electoral college, the suppression of the vote, those five dimensions of inequality express the fundamental problem of America's representative democracy, which is it is not representative. Because it doesn't represent citizens equally, so so that more fundamental problem you know in some sense i find it, I find it's both more challenging and less challenging it's more challenging because obviously there are many more dimensions to uh, understand and to reform it's not like fix money and you fix everything. though it might be that fixing money is the first step to fixing everything else. I mean I still sometimes believe that's the right uh, conclusion, but the more empowering part. Of this is to recognize that you know the fact that there is a common frame for the failure of democracy means that there's a as a way to understand what the remedy must look like and in my view it's a relatively simple remedy it is um, uh, force the principle of equality into every dimension of uh, the infrastructure or the architecture of democracy so force it into the way you raise money, so no longer privately funded elections, some version of a publicly funded election, force it into gerrymandering, into the electoral college, into every one of these so that all of them adhere to this fundamental idea of equality. Um, And I think if Mm -hmm. that happens, then you would see many of the um, uh, 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 pathologies that have evolved inside of American democracy begin to weaken, and, and wither is a big word, but, but make it possible, at least, for democratic um, action to, to do something to, to remedy it. Um, and, or at least that's, you know, seems to me that's the only path to getting, getting to that. But, the, you know, this is a long answer, and I'm just going to point to a second part of the answer and not going to give Please. it. But the, the, more, the more difficult thing for me is, you know, having come to a place where I think, okay, this is the real route, This inequality is the real root, and we have to find a way to address that inequality. The more difficult problem, the more challenging problem is to recognize the problems in us, the problems in our capacity as a people to engage in democratic action, given we live within this media infrastructure that is so focused on rendering us as idiots or rendering us as tribal, uh, polarized, hate-mongering, citizens who focus exclusively on why the other side is so terrible as opposed to trying to understand issues in a common way that help us in a in a in a fundamental way address the problems of um, democracy or anything else and that problem i mean i you know i i have uh, lots of s- potential solutions to that problem and i you know and i think there's a general way of thinking about what the solutions are it's all about um, call it the slow democracy movement. It's all about trying to force democracy into spaces where humans can grok it or reckon uh, the issues in a, in a reflective, serious way. Um, but it's hard to see how you get there. I mean, I could tell you the five things we need to do to fix government. I can't tell you the five things that I'm confident would actually fix this problem. And,
0: hmm. and,
1: and it kind of leads us to a place where you wonder, you know, is, is democracy gonna be possible in a world where we are separated epistemically separated we 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 see different worlds we just see fundamentally different problems and yet we need in some sense to be adjudicating that common problem and uh i'm not sure how we do that anymore sorry that's a long mm. answer
0: no it was a perfect answer and i i really want to touch on uh you know the internet and media side of things as well because that's obviously such a massive. I mean, it's a huge shift in technology for humanity, and it's it's crazy for anyone to imagine that that's not going to bring with it an entire trailer load of of problems for us all. Uh, but in talking about the root of this problem, I, I really think that that's a good way to go about it. Uh, what 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 is the very tip of the root? Where did where did all this start? When did money become uh, too much of a problem in politics in America. Cause, cause I've heard conversations with you where you, you seem to think that obviously uh, this is not how America is supposed to be. And this is not how it was founded. So when did it start to go wrong?
1: Well, I mean, st- start is a, is a hard word to focus because, you know, it's always been the case that money has played an outsized mm. influence on American politics. And, um, and so, you know, you can never find a moment when politics was pure uh, or perfectly uh, responsive. But from that fact, I, I think it's a mistake to infer what many people infer, which is that in some sense, the problem's always been here in the same sense. Um, um, you know, the, you think about like a human body you can say that there's always infection in the human body. Like every human body has infection at some place. um, And the body's fighting it and it's like dealing with it. Um, But you wouldn't infer from that that there is no infection that can be threatening to the human body. Obviously, you get to a certain stage and the infection is so pronounced, so severe, that it can be catastrophic. And I think that's what's happened with money in American democracy. It begins in a really dramatic way. at least um, ideologically, uh, at the end of the 1960s, the beginning of the 1970s, when business interests and conservatives in particular um, reacted to the rise of um, more uh, liberal, sometimes radical uh, views in American politics that was driving for really fundamental reforms of the American political system. So, you know, the beginning of the 1970s sees the establishment of, for example, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, And many conservatives kind of see this as a consequence of failing to rally their own base. And there's um, a launch of an extraordinary number of conservative enterprises who are focused on um, educating people and conservative ideals and um, and beginning to fuel um, a conservative movement inside of the Republican party to change the Republican Party from being um, you know, what it had been, which is a ideologically mixed party, as the Democrats had been an ideologically mixed party, to an ideologically pure party. Um, you know, people don't know this or remember this, but um, you know, for most of the history of American political parties, especially modern American political parties, the parties were not ideological. So Democrats, um, of course, had liberals but they also had conservatives. Southern Democrats were more conservative in their views than um, uh, Republicans. And Republicans had, of course, business conservatives, but they also had idealistic uh, libertarians and egalitarians. The Republican Party is the party that gave birth to the Equal Protection Clause and the end of slavery. Um, So those were mixed parties, but they became ideologically pure parties Uh, uh, Goldwater sort of begins that in a really aggressive way in 1964. But after Goldwater's identification of what pure uh, Republicanism would be, you begin to see a shift of the party to the right and a shift in the Democrats to the left. Um, um, So that change um, is kind of setting the conditions for the really fundamental shift. The really fundamental shift happens in 1995. And Newt Gingrich, who was the Speaker of the House in 1995, um, is the cause of this shift. And I think Newt Gingrich, more than any other American, is responsible for the destruction of American uh, democracy. Um, Because Newt Gingrich, when he became Speaker, he was the first Republican Speaker in 40 years, radically changed the norms of Congress. Um, So he told members of Congress, don't move your families to Washington we'll only work uh, in Washington, Tuesdays through Thursdays. The rest of the time you can be home in the district. But what that quickly translated into is the rest of the time you can be raising money to make sure that mm. our party stays in power. And, um, and that began the really radical change of what Congress was. And Congress people increasingly began to understand that their job, their primary job was as a fundraiser. Um, and, uh, and that's what they increasingly began to do. And you know, at the, originally many members resisted this idea. Um, they thought that they were Congress people because they were supposed to represent their constituents or they're supposed to become experts in certain areas or they're supposed to exercise the job of legislating. But increasingly that, you know, function was separated from the Congress person. The Congress person, the kind of cogs who raised the money to make it so the party could get into power were separated from the policy people who were, you know, a small number of people who drove policy based on political, um, political consequences. That process was quickly copied by Democrats. And beginning in 1995, you begin to see the extraordinary polarization in Congress as Congress becomes this machine for fueling its own reelection. election um, And, and I, you know, you can ask when did it become truly dysfunctional? and it's somewhere between 1995 and today, but, um, but it is today completely, truly, totally, absolutely dysfunctional. It, it's a non-functioning representative democracy. There is no important issue, no important issue that our Congress can address sensibly given the deeply corrupted structure of influence that we've allowed to evolve inside this Congress. And that's not gonna change simply by getting you know one party out and another party in it's only going to change if we find a way to address this fundamental flaw inside of the evolved form of this democracy
0: Mm. you know being in australia you wouldn't think that a lot of us over here really care about american politics but I think that a lot of Australians actually care about American politics more than they care about Australian politics. I mean, there is a point there where I knew more about American politics that I, I didn't even know who the Australian, politi- uh, who the Australian prime minister was. And, and, you know, I think that that's because we all recognize that we really do want America to do as well as possible, because at the end of the day, if, you know, something happens in the world, you know, we're not going and knocking on Sweden's door. We're coming and asking America for help, you know. And and so we really want America to do well. And it, it seems like there's just obviously, like you're saying, there's just such a, a roadblock right now. Uh, do, do you think, I, I guess this is a question of optimism, but do you really think that it can change at this stage?
1: You know, I mean, I've told this story uh, a number of times, so I apologise if someone's heard it before, but... Um, you know, I remember I was giving a speech in in uh, Dartmouth and at the end of it, a woman raised her hand and she said, okay, professor, you've convinced me it's hopeless. There's nothing that can be done. Mm. And I realized I had, you know, failed in a certain sense because I didn't want to give people a sense that it was hopeless. But when she said that, I had this image in my head of um, my then six-year-old son and um, and. And I thought, what, what if a doctor said to me, you know, your son has terminal brain cancer and uh, it's hopeless, there's nothing you can do. You know, would I do nothing? Um, and, you know, the answer is obviously no, that, you know, what love means is that the odds are not relevant. You do whatever you can, whether you think you can succeed or not. Um, and I think that that's the same reaction i have when people say well none of this can really be fixed Um, Mm. you know i deeply love my country i you know not the actual reality of much of its history which of course has been deeply unjust and flawed in incredibly important ways but ideals which have continued to inspire throughout our history and help us move towards um, a better uh, society at critical points. Um, I, I love that tradition, and I love the ideals of that tradition. And, um, and I feel like, you know, I'm not sure if we can win. I'm not sure if we can succeed in reforming this corrupted government. I, I just know that we have to do everything we can to try. And, you know, across the arc of history, great nations fail. That's inevitable. They just fail. Mm. Um, and it might be that we're at that stage in America. And if we are um, you know, we should at least fail gracefully, uh, but, um, but I, I do think that we have to find a way to at least re, uh, pull back the craziness that gets manifested from the United States. And, and it's important to distinguish that craziness, um, from the particular craziness, uh, that's, you know, triggered by the current, uh, uh, president. Um, you know, I, obviously, the level of um, really pathology, really, you know, psychological pathology of this president is astonishing, and it's a it's a true embarrassment to constitutional democracy that we have no capacity to address that. Like the deep um, uh, partisanship of American politics makes it impossible for um, you know the party of the president to question the president. Uh, And and so, you know, even when you have a president who is obviously psychologically, I'm not talking about his policies, I'm just talking about his psychological capacity. um, uh, So, so deeply pathological right now, and yet you can't get four Republicans to um, join with Democrats to do anything about it. you know, that, that's just a fl- failure of American constitutional democracy. But the problems I'm talking about are all there. Even assuming, bingo, tomorrow, Donald Trump, were not president, right? It's not Donald Trump that is creating mm-hmm. these problems. It's a more fundamental, structural, systemic reality inside of our democracy. And, uh, and so, you know, I, it's, it's sometimes frustrating because people are so obsessed with a single question of like, how do we remove Donald Trump? And I think that's an important question because I don't doubt the harm that he's doing to the United States and to the world because of uh, because of the harm to the United States. But I, I, I hope we don't imagine that, you know, all we need to do is to elect a bunch of Democrats and, and get Joe Biden to be president in order to solve these problems. They remain. And it's, I mean, though the Democratic Party has been, wildly more committed to the idea of fixing these problems than the republicans is not clear they actually have the votes or the will or the capacity to fix them um on their own at least so um so so that's you know that's it's even doubly depressing but i think that's the reality that we're facing right
0: now mm. and i did want to ask you about this coming election because I mean, you know, obviously a lot of people felt last time like they were being served two very bad options that they just didn't didn't particularly feel uh were were for them. And then, you know, a lot of people are going to feel exactly the same way this way. Um and and I'd love to know how you think about the voting process because there's kind of like two camps, right? There's the camp that thinks well, you should only vote if you genuinely think that the person you're voting for is you know, virtuous or is going to put forward good policies. Um, uh, and then the other side says, well, you should vote for whoever is going to allow you to not have the other person get voted in. Um, how do you think about voting in America, especially with such elections like these?
1: Well, look, um, your your strategy is a function of the system you work within. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so, you know, we could talk about what that ideal system could be. And and I I'm convinced, though, I think there's lots of important theoretical questions to resolve about this, but I'm convinced that a ranked choice voting system would be infinitely better than the um, first past the post system that we have uh, we've adopted in the United States. Um, so if we had a ranked choice voting system, I would say to people, on your first choice, vote for the person who is the best expression of the ideals you have for a democracy or for the future of the Mm. nation. Um, But then rank everybody. So that in the end, we select someone who at least a majority of the public actually could live with. Um, So that would be a perfect way to allow people to express their ideals, but actually practically construct or practically select someone who is a majority candidate. And and so, uh, um i you know working with many others um, are pushing to try to get ranked choice voting um in the united states it's slow but um you know we're seeing some progress but we don't have ranked choice right now so the idea that you would say as you know people said for example in 2000 in florida um you know ross perot i mean um ralph nader um had famously said there isn't a dimes worth of difference between george bush and uh, and Al Gore, between the Republicans and the Democrats, and those were the two candidates. And so um, he said that's why people should vote for him, because he was different from those two, and he certainly was. Um, But as we got into that election, and it was clear it was gonna be extremely close, it was really democratic malpractice for Ralph Nader not to say to his public, look, we've made our point, but let's be real. You've got to vote for Al Gore. You can't vote for George Bush, um, uh, but he didn't do that. He he continued to insist people should vote for him all the way until the very end. So some 96,000 people voted for Ralph Nader in Florida in 2000, 96,000. Um, George Bush won Florida according to the screwy way in which the votes were finally counted by you know less than 550 votes. So when you say, if those 96,000 people had in, rather than voting for Al Gore, uh, voting for um, Ralph Nader, voted for their second choice, it's absolutely clear that you know 80 percent of them would have voted for uh, Al Gore as opposed to George Bush, and George Bush would have been not elected uh, the president. Um, now, you know, history is a hard thing to think of in the hypothetical. But it's hard not to believe that the world would be a radically different place today had Al Gore been president in 2001, rather than George Bush. Um, You know, probably would have been 9-11, you know, maybe the Gore people would have been more focused, I don't know, but probably would have been 9-11. But there wouldn't have been an Iraq war. And uh, there probably would have been climate change legislation because a president gets the sort of first thing that the president says that he or she, let's hope there will be a she someday, but he wants. And that was for Al Gore climate change legislation. So, you know, kind of think about the way the world would have gone if there had not been an Iraq war, if there had been real climate change legislation in the United States Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Um, And it's not hard to think that that was a catastrophic mistake of, people voting in 2000, not to recognize the logic of the current system that we have. And the logic is that because of the way the electoral college works, if you vote for someone who you know cannot win in your state, you have thrown your vote away and you've effectively thrown it for, um, uh, in many cases, a person who you absolutely do not want as president. So I, I completely reject the idea that given the way the system is right now, people do not have a moral obligation to vote for the lesser of two evils. Of course you do, because that's mm. less evil. <laughs> <You> know, It's <laughs> like, well, you're gonna vote for more evil? I mean, what, this is the reality of our political system. And you know, of course we ought to fight to get a different political system. We ought to fight to get a better, more rep- representative system. And again, rank choice would be an obvious way to do that. But until we're there, yes vote for the lesser of two evils now in this election cycle i mean i understand why people were skeptical of hillary clinton and i'd written um many pieces that were deeply skeptical of her mm. uh um um you know the institutional influence ca- ca- you know the kind of in economy of influence that lived within the clinton world was it was not a pretty sight it was nothing compared to donald trump who was not just kind of improperly influenced, but deeply, deeply corrupted, illegally corrupted. I mean, you know, Donald Trump is a man who has been banned from being allowed to run a charity in the state of New York, legally banned, (laughs) but he's president of the United States, you know, so nothing Hillary Clinton did was anywhere close to that. But I don't think it's fair to say that the current election is presenting people with an equally Um, uh, unpleasant choice. I mean, Hmm. Joe Biden's negatives are nowhere close to Hillary Clinton's negatives. And in fact, I think that he's benefiting substantially from the kind of craziness of the current president. Now, whether people can bring themselves to vote contrary to their party is a really hard question. I'm not sure that I'm not convinced uh, Donald Trump loses at all. but uh but, I do think that it's a in some sense a easier uh, campaign to wage um against him this time than it was in twenty sixteen and I certainly hope that that means that um he will uh he will be defeated
0: mm. no, I think that that's a that's a really fair answer and um you know if if we could jump over to the internet side of things because that's particularly interesting to me is Something that occurred to me recently, I was reading Marcus Aurelius, and he said uh, that something that he learned from one of his teachers was not to pick sides in a chariot race. And, uh, and, and as sort of a logical technique of, you know, you're after good ideas, you're after good sportsmanship, not just picking a team. And it seems like the internet has just led us down this direction where we've all become the highest version of team players. Um, where we, we, we really are going to vote for our side over picking good ideas versus bad ideas. Uh, do, do you think this is something that can be fixed? Do you think that the, the government is trying to do anything about it at the moment in terms of the absolute lack of uh, incentive to do anything other than sensationalized, uh, you know, based on your team?
1: Well, that's a great question because there's a lot of subtlety built into the way you set it up. Um, uh, so let's start with the easy point. Is the government doing anything about it? Not the American government, no. Mm. Um, in fact, um, to the extent the government's doing anything about it, it's trying to reinforce it by um, getting its um, fingers deeply inside of Facebook um, and developing a kind of dependency inside of Facebook that uh, um, you know, I think has deeply corrupted that platform. Um, mm. uh, but I think the more important thing is, um, when you said, you know, is there any incentive, is to focus on incentives. Mm. I mean, the problem is not, quote, the internet, because there's no such thing as the internet. The Mm. internet is a set of technologies and business models. And the business models have changed as much as the technologies have. So the business model of the internet 25 years ago was not advertising. You know, nobody invented advertising. You know, there was like a um, couple efforts to put banners here and there but the idea of using big data to drive advertising was just not in anybody's mind i mean when google was founded uh sergey uh, uh, uh brin and, and and larry page um you know both declared that what would set google apart from every other search engine is they were not going to be advertisers because they thought advertising corrupted a search engine and they were right um but of course when the first crash happened uh in silicon valley in in the late 1990s um immediately every single venture capitalist was saying to silicon valley you need a business model and the business model they discovered was the business model that was driven by the exhaust the data exhaust hmm. of uh the internet which is you know basically the data that you reveal by the way you use the network. So Google had used this a little bit. I mean, Google's design was originally to use this um, initially in like figuring out how to run a search engine. So you know, Google would give you 10 results to a certain uh, query, and it would watch which one you picked. And based on which one you picked, it began to figure out what was the right answer to this question. So that was in a certain sense using the byproduct of your interaction on the internet to make the internet work better. But what quickly became obvious to them is that you could begin to understand the user in a way that would make it possible to target advertising to the user much more effectively than advertising had ever been targeted before. And so there was a race between Google and Facebook um, to become uh, the best data um, libraries um, for modeling and targeting individuals <clears throat> and facebook originally uh, you know sold itself to the market as a much more efficient data um, repository than google could ever be because with facebook you knew who people were really i mean they had real identities and they hmm. they had real express preferences and you could see their life not just in what they searched for on the internet but you know who they interacted with and what they shared and what pictures they uploaded so that the potential to be much more accurate in modeling individuals for the purpose of advertising was at least initially thought to be Facebook. Facebook was thought to be the the platform that would do it better than anybody. And of course, Google's found lots of ways to compete, but the point that is that that was the arms race, an arms race to develop data that could be used to model individuals that could be used to sell advertising. Okay, well, you know, advertising, has been with us for you know in a serious way for 150 years, um, um, and of course in some sense we've we've grown uh, we've inured ourselves to the uh, um, uh, to to its existence. It's not like it seems um, like a bizarre thing, but I think that we need to wake up to the deeply potentially corrupting effect of advertising because. If it turns out, which it seems to have turned out to be true, if it turns out that the most effective way to advertise, or at least the most effective way to create an environment in which advertising flourishes, is to put us into these tribal buckets and to feed us information that, um, you know, kind of like throwing chum in with a bunch of sharks um, you know, gets us riled up and angry and furious at the other side. If that's the technique that makes profit, that makes advertising most profitable, that is a huge externality for democracy. If, if, if the only way to make Facebook rich is to make America stupid, um, we have to worry if Facebook pursues their objective of getting rich. And I think that this is the this is in some sense the, the te- most terrifying thing about what's happened to the internet. You know, 20 years ago, everybody was worried the government was gonna use the internet to spy on you. And of course, many places around the world, that's true. But the bigger problem is that the business model of the internet would develop in a way that would turn it into a democracy destroying device. A device that makes it increasingly difficult for us to engage with each other in the common enterprise of democratic deliberation or decision. And, and you know, I don't know how you get out of that. I mean, we are so far down this path, you can't imagine the government banning advertising. It's not even clear you could do it in, uh, the Amer- in America given the, given the First Amendment. Um, so if we've, got our, if we've kind of allowed this infrastructure to wrap itself within our lives and become so deeply dependent on it for everything we do, and yet that infrastructure itself poisons us, uh, pollutes the very capacity of democracy to function, w- how do we escape it? Um, so this is the sense of which I was signaling before that I, I in some sense feel like I understand how to fix the government part, but this part is really, really hard. Um, so long as we have businesses that control huge swaths of the internet committed to a Business model, which is deeply antithetical to the capacity of democracy to function.
0: Mm. No, well said, and and seriously, it it does kind of. It's one of the massive issues of our time: is is the fact that we just hop onto these platforms, we give them all of our data; they literally know us better than know than we know ourselves most of the time. Yeah, and absolutely. you know, you can probably remember there was uh, you know a few years back. It would be the rare occurrence that you know an advertisement would come up uh, that was something that you were talking about with your friends, and and you'd kind of joke, oh look, they're listening to us, you know, joke about it, and then it happens two times, and then it happens four times, and then it happens again and again and again, and and at this stage, we've all just accepted that we are in this loop that is just making yeah. Facebook as rich as possible. Um, you know, now it's basically run like a government. And and how do you even begin to think about uh, the sort of censorship and you know Facebook sense, uh, setting up like a, its own sort of um, you know board of of censors and um, h- how do you think about that sort of problem with with social media?
1: Well, I mean, you know, in some sense, um, uh, let's let's start. Let's start a little bit back from that uh, with what you just said about, you know, this whole story about, um, you know, when a couple of years ago, people started saying that mm. Facebook was listening to you because, you know, I would talk about something I never talk about. For example, I would talk about cat litter and all of a sudden on my Facebook feed, there would be advertisements for cat litter. Yeah. And what was so ast- astonishing about that incident was that of course, Facebook denied that they were listening to you. And, um, And they said, no, no, no. we're not listening. We're not using. It's just that we've developed algorithms that are good enough to be able to predict what you're likely to be interested in at any one moment. And they offered that as if that was in some sense better. (laughs) (laughs) That it was better that they had limed the architecture of my soul enough to be able to predict what I would be talking about then that they were listening to me. I wish they were just listening to me, because then I at least know what I need to do. Just turn off the phone, right? But if if they're telling me that they have figured me out enough that they can know that on Wednesday I'm going to start thinking about you know um, uh, you know places I can go swim on Saturday, and and they'll be advertising on the then in some sense, we've deeply given over our identity to this infrastructure of um, artificial intelligence. So that's number one. And number two, um, you know, I initially thought that all of these efforts at sort of corporate governance of individuals, not corporate governance of corporations, but corporate governance of individuals was disastrous, that we needed to reinforce public governance of of individuals and and i guess that i've come to the a slightly modified version of that which is i think we have to accept the reality that um these institutions are going to be the front line of governance not just in like you know decency questions but in questions of defamation and questions of threat and risk and um, criminal activity, you know, Facebook's going to know more about the criminals in the world than the police are. Um, uh, and you know, Facebook's certainly killed fewer people in response to that than the police have. So that might not be a bad thing. Um, I mean, bracketing Myanmar, which, you know, is obviously uh, a huge issue on its own, but, um, but I think that what we need to do though is to, um, fight hard against the presumption that exists, especially in American jurisprudence, that once you say it's to be regulated privately, there's nothing more for the government to say. Instead, I think we need to begin to develop a really rich and aggressive set of normative uh, constraints or interventions um, or conditions that make it possible for these um, Private entities to be certified or qualified to engage in these kinds of judgments. So, for example, you know we have a big fight in the United States about um, something called Section Two Hundred and Thirty of the Communications Decency Act, which basically creates an immunity um, in uh, these online platforms um, for um, things like defamation. So, you know, if I go onto an online platform and I say Mark Zuckerberg is a pedophile, um, I can be sued. Uh, because I've engaged in defamation. But, um, but the platform that hosts my content can't be sued for defamation, even if the platform refuses to take my post down. You know, so if I post it in Twitter and Twitter never takes it down, um, even though Mark Zuckerberg calls uh, Jack Dorsey and says, hey, Jack, I'm not a pedophile, take that down. Jack never takes it down. Twitter can't be punished um, under defamation law because of Section 230. There are many people, and I'm one of them, who think that, you know, immunity in general is a bad thing, and we ought to avoid institutions that um, entrench immunity. So, you know, we're thinking about what are the ways to have a a better system of accountability um, than 230. And one response is to say, just abolish it, and let's go back to the courts regulating this stuff. But the reality is courts are so deeply inefficient and costly that that's no solution at all. That's basically to say, you know, let's go back to a state of nature for uh, addressing these things. Instead, it seems clear to me, we're gonna have to think about institutions like Facebook um, uh, playing a a more substantial role in adjudicating questions like this. Now, what does that mean? It means that the government, I think, needs to set standards for these private entities to engage in these acts of, um, to engage in these acts of, uh, uh, policing or adjudicating you know what are the kind of minimal standards to qualify as a um, as um, a fair system of defamation adjudication and um, and and if they if they live up to those standards then the thing that they do gives them immunity where they can't be they can't be held accountable beyond that if they don't live up to those standards then they can be held accountable but the point is we need to create an incentive for innovation in addressing these questions of justice and adjudication in a private context but the private context needs to live up to public ideals and and so I think that's where the progress is going to be found and we need to think of ways to do it that doesn't sort of turn over the whole of the values of private uh, of public adjudication in into the context of private litigation
0: mm. Yeah. And and I really like the uh, solution base that you have there of, of opening up competition. Um, You know, obviously monopolies are not good for anybody except for the people who who own them. But do you think that pretty much social media is, is in a monopoly already at the moment? I mean, you've got basically Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and, and LinkedIn. And I mean, that's kind of it, you know, and there's a few coming up, but do you think even if they broke them apart, I mean, they've already got a stronghold, right?
1: I, I do think that, you know, antitrust authorities around the world have failed the world by mm. not more aggressively uh, prosecuting antitrust ideals in the internet age. It's just astonishing to think in America that the last major antitrust action in the technology sector was um, the Microsoft case 20 years ago you know, 22 years ago, Um, and uh, in the the time since, we've allowed, you know, groups like Facebook especially, but Google too, to leverage their enormous power um, to uh, basically protect themselves from any effective um, um, competition. And in a certain sense, the business model of um, uh, uh, venture capital has conformed itself to this reality. So the basic venture capital model in silicon valley now is to develop a technology that will uh, be acquired by facebook for some astronomical amount very quickly so Mm -hmm. you know you look at the companies that facebook has bought they were developing really uh uh innovative techniques or platforms that would challenge facebook whether it's instagram or um um, uh, whatsapp um and um, you know, when they got viable and it was clear that their, uh, that their uh, uptick was, was huge and their growth was substantial, especially among um, populations that Facebook was vulnerable about, so like young people, um, um, Facebook bought them. And when Facebook bought them, the value of Facebook stock went up um, uh, substantially. And the reason that Facebook stock went up is that by buying them, the market recognized that Facebook had basically shut down a potential competitor. Now, the point is, it was worth it for Facebook, and it was also worth it for the, um, you know, the, the Instagrams or the WhatsApps. Um, you know, obviously, the founder of WhatsApp, you know, was torn deeply uh, because of the philosophical commitments that he had had to the um, infrastructure of WhatsApp, and once it was sold to Facebook, you know, all of the philosophical commitments went out the window. Um, And so he walked away, and then he started attacking Facebook. But the point is that people recognize, I think, that in Silicon Valley, that there's a way to get rich. And the way to get rich is to build something that Facebook wants to eat. And then once it's eaten it, then go on, build something new. Um, And that's a deeply, deeply corrupted form of competition. Um, Because what we need in competition is competitors who really want to kill their competitor. That's the only way that we check the power of existing dominant competitors and also create the opportunity for real innovation that um, could benefit uh, society generally and part of the reason we don't have that is government because government has failed to uh, prosecute antitrust actions even in areas where um, you know it's completely obvious uh, uh that they should have the there's a great book um, by tim Wu. i think he stole the title of uh, brandeis's book i'm not blanking a little bit i think it's The Curse of Bigness. But um, anyway, Tim Wu's book about antitrust in the digital age is a fantastic account of like the obvious places where they ignored the law and the consequences, what we have right now. So is there anything to be done? Well, you know, if there's something to be done, it's not going to be, you can't take on the monster, you know, face front. my, you know, I'm uh, a big, big admirer of, of Elizabeth Warren, and she ran a vigorous and ex- inspiring campaign for the Democratic nomination of, for president this time. I, I thought it was a pretty big mistake that early on she um, she said she won, she was going to break up Facebook. You know, <laughs> it created a lot of incentives from really powerful people to make sure she didn't win. Um, and you know, I think Facebook in particular has uh, made deals with the devil. Um, and we know when those deals happened. I mean, you know, he meets privately with the president and we know that this president has no constraints on, on what he would do to try to assure his reelection. He is so deeply insecure about the fact that he actually didn't win the first time um, that he's gonna sell the soul of the nation and sacrifice thousands of his own supporters, literally, um, you know, his his. Commitment now to these rallies will certainly lead to people, um, uh, you know, um, being exposed to this this pandemic and uh, um, and you know how many are going to die because of this. But that's a decision to you know sacrifice people for his own re-election, and um, and so I'm sure that there was nothing that would lead him to stop making whatever promise he needed to make to Mark Zuckerberg to get Mark Zuckerberg to make whatever promise he needed to make to the president. And that uh, and promise um, you know, only needed to be, we're not going to intervene to hold uh, your campaign to any account. And you know, we'll see whether that's sufficient to, to flip an election, but it certainly was the, the plan. Um, so I, I'm not sure if they're too big to be broken up. Um, I, I do think we have to get into a position where we have a government that's not dependent on these private interests, and then see what that government's capable of doing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's kind of horrifying that I've never heard it. You know, I knew that people were obviously selling companies to Facebook. I never knew that it was almost seen as kind of a business model that you would create this competitor and then the beast would eat it up and you'd just walk away rich. Um, it's a, such an interesting way to look at it, but I only have a couple more questions for you, uh, Lawrence, if you have time, the, the first one really is, is, I want to make it extremely practical for people. Say somebody comes up to you, one of your students and and says, listen, um, I have no idea how to solve all of these big problems with the government at the moment, but I'd like to do something. What can the average person do, you know, today, whether it is just to vote or send a letter, send an email, what can people do in America in order to have more of a say in the government?
1: Well, look, um, as I've said, uh I... donald trump is not the cause of america's problems Uh, and if he were gone tomorrow we would still have a huge number of problems Mm. but there is no doubt that the most important thing that must happen is that donald trump and his republican party needs to be decimated in this next election if we don't find a way to hold uh, uh the republican party to account for their um collaboration with um you know, he's not a traitor, he's just a psychopath. A collaboration with a psychopath um, as president, then there are no incentives for good behavior inside of politics. So there's no doubt that if you have something, you, if you have, a, you have time, you're asking the question, what should you be doing? You should be working to assure that this man and his party is not reelected. Now, let's be real, there's a lot that you can do to keep yourself in power if you have no constraints on your behavior, and he has no constraints. So I'm not sure that winning is even enough um, uh, for us, for our side, Um, uh, but that's certainly what has to happen. We have to defeat um, this man, again, not so much because of his policies, but because of the deep corruption to the basic ideals of representative government in a system of rule of law, which he certainly manifests. So that's the thing to be done in the next six months. After, you know, if we're successful in that, then there's a whole other world of important critical change that we need to take up. Uh, And that includes, you know, um, the whole range of democracy reform that I'm talking about. And that enables the capacity to address the, um, the kind of we don't represent us problem, the problem of the way media represents or renders us uh, in in this democracy. But we don't get to any of those problems. I mean, we'll be lucky if we get to the opportunity to solve those problems, because we're not gonna be thinking about solving those problems if this president's reelected. I mean, many people Mm -hmm. are gonna be thinking, how do we get to Australia or New Zealand (laughs) or Iceland? (laughs) Because this place is gonna be a scary place to be.
0: Yeah. I think that there's a lot of people over there who feel like that. And, uh, you know, I guess my last question, um, just a simple one, but I was really interested in, in finding this out from you. Uh, who is, who is the American president who you look up to the most from history and why?
1: You know, that that's a hard question. I mean, the obvious answers are right for obvious reasons. Uh, you know the sacrifice of Lincoln was incredible and personal and um, uh, uh and so you know one should revere uh that president. there are also presidents who um you know we never we never got to know how extraordinary they were going to be james garfield um who of course nobody even knows about because he served as president for i think six months um mm. uh, but um uh you know until he was he was shot by um, a crazy person early in his administration, but he was, you know, it was in some ways a genius. He, he penned uh, an original proof to the Pythagorean theorem while he was president. Um, and uh, he had a deep commitment to civil rights, which at that moment um, in the late 18, in the 19, 1880s, uh if he had delivered on that commitment. The whole course of american history could have been radically different um Mm. but you know so i i I admire who he could have been I, i think fdr had a conception of transformative presidential politics i don't agree with everything he was trying to accomplish especially in the first new deal which was deeply fascistic in its conception of you know sort of um concentrated power over the economy but the point is he had a conception of rallying the public to a common ideal, which I think is to be admired. And, you know, in some ways, um, you you know, it's hard to admit because he was such a flawed person, but Lyndon Johnson is the person who gave us civil rights legislation. But for Lyndon Johnson, I don't think, I don't think Kennedy would have succeeded in getting us the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. uh, and he was, you know, he was on the course to failing and getting, it, getting us that. It was Johnson's really almost um, pathological commitment to success in legislation that uh, that led to that happening. So, you know, there's a rich array of different people and different reasons to admire them. We should also admit there are so many mediocre presidents in american history really Mm -hmm. mediocre people because for most of the american history presidents were not important they were not supposed to be important it's a good thing they were not important because you know at those stages of american history the idea of representative democracy was representative democracy it wasn't a king or a kind of super leader it was like leadership inside of congress and um and we've obviously given up on that idea and we have increasingly an authoritarian conception of democracy. And that's obviously created the great risks that have inspired people like Donald Trump.
0: Hmm. No, I appreciate that. That answer. Absolutely. And I'm going to be really selfish and just ask one more quick one for anybody. So for, for myself, particularly, this one's for me, um, interested in learning more about how the American government works about the history of the American government. Um, what what are some books that you think would be absolute must reads for someone like me?
1: Well, I mean, you know, minor self-promotion here, but, you know, to cool. the extent that you want to pass into this in the direction that I've just offered you, you know, the book that I just finished last year, that they don't represent us is is a kind of window into that. And I've tried to, in that book, like point to the more fundamental sources for understanding this. But I think, you know, the critical thing to understand about American history is the dark side to American mm. history. And, um, I, and so I don't mean dark by color. I mean, dark by, you know, um, um, the less than idealistic parts of American history. And so I think understanding reconstruction and slavery is the most important first step to understanding American history. So you want to understand slavery. You read a book like, um, the half has never been told uh, by Baptiste, um, which is this astonishing account of American slavery. Uh, um, uh, and, you know, its centrality to the development of the um, of the emergence of American of America, um, like the wealth mm-hmm. of America was from slavery, not just the South, but all of America. Um, so that, that's an extraordinary like uh, introduction. I think that the, um, um uh, man I'm blanking on the yeah, I should have prepared for this <laughs> i'm sorry there's no a... that's
0: fine I, I know that this was just a sprung on question at the end yeah. either way, I'm happy to put links and and stuff in yeah the I'm happy
1: thing. to give you yeah. uh, there's a wonderful book um uh I'm sorry uh, Kinzer's book on uh Teddy Roosevelt, which is something about the flag, but that's the extraordinary story Mm. of imperialism, the history and the fight for imperialism in America and the really um, fundamental struggle with the soul of America about whether America would become an imperialist nation like Britain and Germany and and, uh, other European countries or whether it would remain committed to its anti-imperialist foundation. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt, who for reformers like me is in some ways a hero on this dimension is incredible evil because Roosevelt and Lodge did everything they could to turn America into a world imperialist force and succeeded, obviously. Um, And so the understanding how we became really the opposite of who we were at birth is like another important critical part of American Mm.
0: history. Awesome. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been really awesome and, uh, and sure. it was a pleasure for me. And, uh, and look, I'd love to talk to you again in the future, but uh, good luck with everything that you're doing over there. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to sign up for email updates, join my Patreon meetup groups that we hold weekly, or if you'd like to offer feedback or suggestions for future guests or topics on the show, and you can head to simonjedrew.com. There you'll also find information about how we can work one-on-one together with my alignment coaching based around the philosophical principles found in Stoicism. Finally, if you are on Facebook, then I'd love to see you in our group, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But hey, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll talk to you next time.